Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Teacher, said John, and remember John is one of the three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's part of that inner circle of Jesus' disciples who witness everything. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. They've already had this argument about who the greatest is. And Jesus has tried to explain to them what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. But they clearly aren't getting it. I mean, they might understand to a degree that they're supposed to be at the bottom. And that they're supposed to be supporting the rest. But they're still thinking that to be leaders in the kingdom of God, all the power is going to be centralized in our hands. And we're going to decide who uses it, when they use it, how they use it, where they use it. And so, they find a guy. This guy is out there casting out demons in Jesus' name. But he's not a disciple. Not only that, he doesn't follow the disciples. He says he's not following us. That's what the Greek says. They, this guy wasn't there when Jesus rose, raised the dead and Peter, James, and John were the only witnesses. He wasn't there on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus right in his resurrected glory. This guy wasn't there. This guy wasn't there when Jesus set apart in Mark chapter 6, the 12, as unique leaders in the church and gave them the authority to cast out demons. This guy wasn't there. So what does he think he's doing? And Jesus responds. And I'm going to just summarize it in a point. It's the only point we're going to talk about today. Jesus seems to be saying to me that in the kingdom of God, God distributes the ministry. There's no human authority to distribute ministry. Now that's a cantankerous thing to say. But let's see if we can, we can get there. I love Jesus' response. So this guy has been casting out demons and Jesus says, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Somehow, even though Jesus has just told his disciples that leadership in the kingdom of God would be from the bottom up instead of from the top down, that somehow leaders in the kingdom are there for the health of the body and the body is not there for the health of the leader, they still assume that ministry in the kingdom had to go through them, had to be connected to them, had to receive their authorization somehow. And notice that Mark doesn't say that this guy was trying to cast out demons. 
Right? There's a story like that in the book of Acts where these seven sons of a man named Sceva try to go in and cast out a demon. Very unsuccessfully. They tried to cast out a demon. But that's not what we have here. Matter of fact, earlier the disciples tried to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. Right? That's what caused the whole controversy at the foot of the mountain. But this guy, not a disciple, not an apostle, not tethered to them, is, he's successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. How can this be? Well, this reminds me of a story in the book of Numbers. And maybe for some of you who've heard this before, uh, it reminds you of the same story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to the First Testament book of Numbers, way back at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. This is Numbers chapter 11. And so it's very interesting. Mark likes to draw parallels between the way the whole Israelite thing got started under Moses' ministry and the way the whole Christian thing is getting started under Jesus' ministry. In many ways, and we talked about this over several weeks, Jesus is the new Moses, initiating a new covenant and bringing the new law of God. But a lot of the things that happened during the early days of Moses' ministry are also happening during the early days of Jesus' ministry. And this is Numbers chapter 11, uh, verses... I'm going to start in verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put the spirit on the seventy elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They didn't come when the other elders were summoned. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now, something's happening there in the life of Moses, and this is such a critical passage because it sets the stage for all prophetic ministry through the rest of the history of Israel. Moses gathered all these guys together and more or less laid hands on them and they received the Spirit and 70 of them prophesied. That's a really great way to show that Moses is the leader that God has chosen, right? But two guys weren't there. They didn't come when they were summoned. And so they're sitting out in the camp somewhere and they get the Spirit too. And they start prophesying. And why do you think Joshua says, stop them? Well, because... That, does, that looks like some, the Spirit can come by someone other than Moses. You don't want that. But people should think it all comes through Moses. Otherwise, why would they listen to him? But Moses says, what? What are you talking about? Are you jealous for my sake? Do you think I need this power? I wish God would just make everybody a prophet. Make Moses' job a lot easier. But what this does in the history of Israel is that it sets up the precedent that the prophets never come through the authority structure. The prophets never come through the authority structure in Israel. The prophets don't get chosen by a priest or by a king. The kings get anointed by priests, but more often they get anointed by prophets. The prophets operate outside of the power structure in ancient Israel. And they're often at odds with the king. And this sets up that precedent that though Moses lays his hands on these folks and they receive the spirit, which is a legitimation of Moses' leadership, there are people who can get the Spirit without any access to Him. God often works outside the camp. 
Now, the disciples don't get that. They're in the position of Joshua, who's Moses' right-hand man, just like the disciples are Jesus' right-hand men. And they're thinking exactly what Joshua thought. They need to come to us. Jesus, if you're going to be dead, how are we going to control this thing unless we can control the power? But you see, what the disciples needed to learn and what the Israelites might have learned is that God is often working outside the camp. God will work where God will work. And none of us can control His Spirit. None of us can determine where it will go. God determines the ministry. And this is something that is so clear, it seems to me, in the First Testament, yet so impossibly hard to believe. Second Chronicles chapter 35. We're, we're in the midst of the reign of a good king in the history of, south, of southern Israel. And that is something to say. Because most of the kings who led the Israelite people are not good. Most of them are wicked. Most of them are compromised. Most of them have prophets coming against them over and over again. But Josiah is not one of those kings. His father was the worst king in the history of Israel. Matter of fact, his father Manasseh was so wicked that God says he's destroying the southern kingdom of Israel finally because of Manasseh and his leadership. So that's a serious, serious guy that Josiah was raised by. But Josiah turns the table. He tries to reform Israel and bring it back into faithfulness to God. So during his time, they're cleaning out the temple, which Manasseh has filled with all kinds of idols and stuff like that. And they find the book of the law. They find the book of Moses during Josiah's leadership. It had been lost for a generation. Nobody had read it because nobody could find it. Buried under all the idols Manasseh put in there. And they find it and Josiah starts to read it. And he says, my goodness, we're living in sin. Look at all this stuff. We do none of this stuff. And so he initiates the Passover, he initiates reforms, he breaks down Asherah poles and, and, and idol worship and all that sort of thing. So Josiah is a great king, a good king, the last, really, of the good kings of Israel. And yet his, his life ends in the saddest, strangest, most lackluster way. Some of you remember the story. This is Second Chronicles chapter 35, and begin reading in verse 20. After all this... And what's in verse 19, the this, is Passover. He finally got the Israelites to celebrate the Passover after years of neglect. Chapter 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? Is it not you? It, it is not you I am attacking at this time, but the house with which I am at war. God has told me to hurry. So stop opposing God, who is with me, or he'll destroy you. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, Take me away, I'm badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in the other chariot he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. What a, I mean, you couldn't find a better king than Josiah. But when he runs up against Pharaoh, Pharaoh, who says, your God is sending me to fight the Assyrians. And Josiah, he can't believe it. Yeah, 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 God told you. I'm sure God, my God, my God, if my God told you, he would have told me. And Josiah goes to war. And sure enough, the writer of Chronicles tells us, Josiah was wrong. God had sent Pharaoh. 
And because Josiah wouldn't recognize it, he was killed that day. And all his reforms end. But again, it's the same principle at work in John's heart. The same principle at work in Joshua's heart was also at work in Josiah's heart. God doesn't work outside this camp. We control where ministry is done, how it is done, who does it. We authorize ministers. But in the kingdom of God, God determines and distributes the ministry. Paul is going to say this later on in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the church as a body. He says God distributes the gifts of the Spirit as He sees fit, not as we see fit. But what does it mean for us? This week what I want to emphasize is that power in the kingdom of God is not centralized. And you must very carefully live your lives as though that is true. And there are a few ways that we can do this, I think, at least living out of these stories. First, if you hear that the Holy Spirit is being poured out in some other context, in some other country, in some other nation, in some other part of the world, maybe in some other congregation in your hometown, that very well might be God at work in the world. If they're not against us, they're for us. Secondly, if God is working in somebody else's life, and we start to think that it's just not just, it's just not fair, one of the things we have to learn in the kingdom of God is to wish other people well, even when we wish we were doing better. We have to recognize that God works where God works. He may work with someone we don't much like. Think Pharaoh, goodness sakes, how much more wicked a person could you be and yet God's using him to kill Josiah, a very good king? God determines and distributes the ministry. And God often works outside of the camp. But what we have to realize, so my first two applications were for just you as individuals, but now I have one for the church. It has become increasingly clear in the United States of America that in our context... Pushing denominational loyalty over against loyalty to God or to Christ is not only out of step with the culture, it's being rejected by the youngest generations. For those of us who want to push denominational loyalty above and against all other things, we are going to lose the next generation. I think that at least is becoming clear. But what you might not expect, maybe I didn't expect to be saying this when I first read the statistics, is that that might actually be a biblical move that that might actually put us more in line with Jesus' teachings than we have been for generations in our country. Because we have become loyal to a power-centralizing structure, failing to recognize that the ministry has always been in the hands of God. The future of the church of Jesus Christ is God. And whatever and wherever he wants to do what he's going to do. What we need to get over as a church is this desire to keep our peculiar brand moving forward at any cost. What instead we need to embrace is that we need to find and discover where God is working in the world and join with that no matter the cost.